Welcome to Quarantine Seminary with Brother Isom. This episode, we're continuing our walkthrough of the book of Alma with Alma chapter four. The Nephites have just undergone an incredibly disruptive year, and that has really been the culmination of five years of conflict with the followers of Nehor. While Nehor was executed earlier on, his followers, especially a man named Amlesi, took his ideas and ran with them. Our tendency as readers is to think about Nehor in terms of his religious teachings, and that makes sense. The Book of Mormon is a book of scripture, and we read it for religious purposes. But if we assume that Amlesi knew the ins and outs of Nehorism better than we do, then we see that Nehor's theology really was only one piece in an effort to reconstruct Nephite society as a monarchy perhaps with the Mulekites moving into positions of power and with the church stripped of its ability to function as an extra-governmental confessional community. The Amlicites have now joined with the Lamanites, and the Nephites are left in Reconstruction mode, and that's where we pick up in Chapter 4, which actually marks the beginning of Mormon's Chapter 2. In verses 1-5, through five, we learn that Mormon has moved on to the sixth year of the reign of the Judges, or about 86 B.C., and they are very much in recovery mode still. Even though there were no direct conflicts, the Amlicite Rebellion had a huge cost in loss of life, loss of livestock, and crops. Remember, they can't just go to the grocery store to pick up food. This much loss is crippling to the livelihoods of these Nephites. This is a period of mourning, and the Nephites take it to heart. Mormon tells us that they believed it was the judgments of God set upon them because of their wickedness and their abominations. Therefore, they were awakened to remembrance of their duty. That's a telling statement. It's not always healthy to look at every trial as a judgment from God. Some people can get in that habit. But on the other hand, it's also not healthy to think that your people, your tribe, your church is part of the completely guiltless people when there has been so much suffering. I think the key here is that the Nephites let this belief wake them up to remember their duty, or maybe we could say their covenants, which were to obey God and care for one another. That's a good sign. We could certainly use some of that in our own world, something that wakes us up and causes us to remember each other and God. Mormon tells us that Alma and the church began to establish the church more fully, Yea, and many were baptized in the waters of Sidon and were joined to the church of God. So it wasn't just members of the church versus the Amlicites. There were Nephites who were neither members of the church or Amlicite, and some of those Nephites have now joined the church. We've moved on to the seventh year of the reign of the judges, or about 85 BC, and 5,300 souls are baptized and join the church. In verses 6 through 10, we get the eighth year of the reign of the judges, and the cracks are already beginning to show in the post-Amlicite rebellion Nephite society. The members of the church are beginning to lose that self-awareness and humility that they gained after the Amlicite rebellion. 
They're beginning to see their wealth, their nice clothes, their land and flocks, their gold and their silver, and so forth as evidence of how great they are. This is a red flag for Alma and the leaders of the church. And why? Perhaps it's because the church is beginning to act like the Amlicites. They're associating wealth with righteousness, which will soon result in associating poverty with wickedness. And this is the type of thinking that breeds entitlement and inequality. This all leads members of the church to begin to persecute those who don't believe, presumably both members of the church and those who aren't members of the church, just like the Amlicites had persecuted the believers a few years earlier. And here's Mormon's sobering summary of the situation. And thus ended the eighth year of the reign of the judges, and the wickedness of the church was a great stumbling block to those who did not belong to the church. And thus the church began to fail in its progress. Ugh. Moving on to verses 11 through 20, Mormon takes us into the ninth year of the reign of the judges, and Mormon puts us in Alma's head. We can safely assume that Mormon is paraphrasing from Alma's own account of how he sees the church drifting from its purpose. Mormon says of Alma, he saw great inequality among the people, some lifting themselves up with their pride, despising others, turning their backs upon the needy and the naked and those who were hungry and those who were sick and afflicted. There's Alma thinking through the church value of equality again. We saw it first at the Waters of Mormon in response to Noah's kingdom, then in the land of Helam when Alma the Elder refuses to be king, and we see it again in Zarahemla as the church prospers and uses that prosperity to care for the poor, and now we see it in Alma's red flags. He sees the church drifting from that value. This isn't the whole church, of course, but it's enough to cause the alarm bells to sound for those who are abasing themselves, as Mormons calls it, or staying humble and continuing to care for the poor. Right here, we get a reference to King Benjamin's speech because Mormon detaches caring for the poor with retaining a remission of one's sins. Here's what Benjamin taught. And again, I say unto you, as I have said before, that as ye have come to the knowledge of the glory of God, or even if ye have known of his goodness, and have tasted of his love, and have received a remission of your sins, which causeth such exceedingly great joy in your souls, even so I would that ye should remember, and always retain in remembrance, the greatness of God, and your own nothingness, and his goodness, and long-suffering toward you unworthy creatures, and humble yourselves even in the depths of humility, calling on the name of the Lord daily, standing steadfastly in the faith of that which is to come, which was spoken by the mouth of the angel. And behold, I say unto you that if ye do this, ye shall always rejoice, and be filled with the love of God, and always retain a remission of your sins. And ye shall grow in the knowledge of that which is just and true. And ye will not have a mind to injure one another, but to live peaceably, and to render to every man according to that which is his due. And ye will not suffer your children that they go hungry or naked. Neither will ye suffer that they transgress the laws of God and fight and quarrel one with another and serve the devil who is the master of sin or who is the evil spirit which hath been spoken of by our fathers, he being an enemy to all righteousness. But ye will teach them to walk in the ways of truth and soberness. You would teach them to love one another and to serve one another. You can see the connection that Mormon is drawing for us. Some of the church is getting prideful and lifting themselves up above others. 
while other members of the church are abasing themselves, serving others and retaining a remission of their sins. I love the language that Mormon uses to describe these humble members of the church. He says that they do what they do for Christ's sake, who should come according to the spirit of prophecy, looking forward to that day, thus retaining a remission of their sins, being filled with great joy because of the resurrection of the dead, according to the will and power and deliverance of Jesus Christ from the bands of death. In other words, when faced with problems that are endemic to mortality, they're going to respond with the logic of Christ and the resurrection. They believe in the future resurrection so thoroughly that they're going to act as if it had already come upon them. We could imagine encountering one of these humble followers as they're going about doing good and asking them, what are you doing? And them responding, I'm doing the work of the resurrection for Christ's sake. Alma is overwhelmed by what he sees. He has humble followers of Christ who are committed to responding to whatever situation they face with hope. And then he also has prideful members of the church that are breaking the church community and generating conflict among the broader Nephite people. And apparently, there are still some persecutions from outside the church directed at the humble members. And we can imagine these persecutions being a combination of maybe a residue of Amlicite sentiment and the problems that are being generated by prideful members of the church. Facing all of this, Alma has to decide how to respond. And he has two main avenues of response, the government and the ministry. Remember that so far in the book of Alma, most of what we've seen from Alma is him using the government to address Nephite problems, including the execution of Nehor and the war with the Amlicites. So far, we've only gotten a glimpse of his work as high priest, and not really until the beginning of chapter 4 where he's baptizing 3,500 people. Perhaps this is just the way that Mormon has decided to tell the story of these first few years, or maybe Mormon tells the story that way because Alma's time and energy has been heavily consumed by founding and managing a new government that has been in crisis since year one. And we actually get that a little bit later when Alma goes to people and says, I haven't been able to come to you because I've been too busy with the government. I imagine it's a difficult choice for Alma as he looks at his options and he probably loses a lot of sleep figuring out what he should do. But he finally makes his choice. Mormon tells us, and he selected a wise man who was among the elders of the church and gave him power according to the voice of the people. Now this man's name was Nephiha, and he was appointed chief judge, and he sat in the judgment seat to judge and to govern the people. The chief judge is effectively a king with a network of other judges under him. And now Alma is giving up the throne, similar to how his father rejected the throne, but he retains his office of high priest. He's made his choice about which tool he's going to use to address the problems that he's facing, and it's the tool of ministry. And I quote, that he himself might go forth among his people or among the people of Nephi, that he might preach the word of God unto them to stir them up in remembrance of their duty, and that he might pull down by the word of God all the pride and craftiness and all the contentions which were among his people, seeing no way that he might reclaim them, save it were in bearing down in pure testimony against them. Alma's rejection of the judgment seat is not a rejection of the importance of governing. 
He's not an anarchist, but all of us have limited capacity and we're all left with Alma-like decisions of where we're going to invest our time and energy to have the greatest impact. We can consecrate all that we have, but we can't consecrate all that we have in every single way. Some people will spend their entire lives trying to move the needle a tiny bit on a single issue. Some people will take positions of power and prominence, but sacrifice other things like time with their families. Some are scholars, some are teachers, some are engineers or entrepreneurs or activists. Some are parents. Some are able to invest their time and energy into building the kingdom, but aren't married or they don't have children. Alma's choice here is based on his evaluation of the problems facing his community and the options available to him to address those problems. And make no mistake, he's not leaving public life. In the modern world, we tend to relegate religion to an internal, personal experience and, and public life is given over to the secular. That's not the case here. The church in Alma's day is a robust and capable community that takes upon itself the burden of others. We'll see that Alma is still one of the most influential figures of Nephite society and that his ministry will often overlap with the political realities of his day. And that's how this chapter wraps up. We're about to move into an important section of the book of Alma where Alma launches an effort to reignite the covenant among the Nephites. Thanks for listening. Quarantine Seminary is an independent podcast unaffiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. None of the views expressed here represent the official teaching or position of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Our music today, as always, was provided by Dallin Isom. Be sure to check out his stuff at SoundCloud.com. Be sure to subscribe to stay up to date on new content. Until next time, I'm your host, Mason Isom. Mm-hmm.